Well, good evening, RUF. Good evening, y'all. Uh, as Lewis said, my name is Dan uh, Murata. I'm a pastor of a church in Richmond. I'm married to a beautiful woman named Rachel. Together we have four kids, ages, ages 8, 6, 3, and 1. Um, right now she is attempting to put all of them to bed by herself, and I get to hang out with you. So I'm having a great night. Um, this is, I'm actually having fun for a lot of reasons. Uh, when I first came to speak to you guys a number of years ago, I really just came as a favor to Lewis, because I love him, but I didn't really know you. Um, but now I like you guys, and I don't really care about hanging with Lewis, so <laughs> this is a good night. No, I, I love Lewis. Um, Lewis is a godfather to two of my children. Um, he's a good friend. We were, aw, did I get an awe from over here? That was, yeah, thank you, I appreciate that. Um, uh, he's, he's a good friend. Our wives are actually going away on a trip together in a couple weeks, um, and so it's been good to kind of keep, keep the bonds of friendship going. Um, this, is, this night is really fun for another reason, though, which is that um, I have known Doug and Linda Smethers like my entire life. Um, we, I grew up in Charlottesville, which is where they lived for a while. Their oldest son, Matt, is one of my best friends. He was a groomsman in my wedding. I was a groomsman in his. And um, I can vouch for Summer's Best two weeks. My wife went to Summer's Best growing up. Um, she turned out pretty well. And um, maybe, maybe the Murata kids will go someday. We'll see. Um, anyway, if you're not doing anything else this summer, I actually heartily concur. You should go work at Summer's Best. Um, if you have this little sheet that was sitting on your seat when you got in, if you could take it out, flip it over to the back where you'll find a scripture uh, lesson from the book of Galatians. I'm going to read this for us here. We're in the book of Galatians, which is in the New Testament. It's a letter written by the Apostle Paul, who traveled around the Mediterranean planting churches. Um, and this is a letter that he wrote to a group of churches in an urban area in what is today modern-day Turkey. And he wrote to them because he was their pastor. But he was away traveling, and he missed them, and he was worried about some stuff that was happening. So he wrote them a letter, and this is it. We're going to pick up in chapter 3, verse 26. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Folks, this is God's word. It is absolutely true and is given to us because he loves us. Amen? Okay, have you ever thought about how so many of our favorite children's stories begin with a character um, who is longing to be a part of a family, who just wishes that they had some sort of family or community or adventure or life purpose, but they just don't have any. They're living this kind of very dull, boring, mediocre, ordinary life. And then all of a sudden, 
in the first chapter or two, something happens and they're caught up in a much larger story. They discover they have a family and a, and a heritage and, and they get swept off into some kind of adventure. Um, let's just think of a couple examples. You might think about King Arthur, right? The boy Arthur doesn't really know who he is. He, he pulls the sword out of the stone and then later discovers that he's the only child of Uther Pendragon and he's the heir to the throne of England, right? Let's think about Shay Olmsford living in Shady Vale until he discovers that he is the long-lost heir to a powerful talisman and has the ability to defeat an evil villain. Let's think about Mia Thermopolis. <laughs> you know who that is. <laughs> shy, shy American teenager who learns she is heir to the throne of a European kingdom. For those of you who don't know that reference, that's Anne Hathaway in Princess Diaries. Okay, my favorite, though, would have to be Harry Potter, right? Young Harry discovers he's a wizard, and that even though he has grown up as an orphan, he has a family, he has a heritage, and he's invited into Hogwarts, a community, the community he's always longed to be a part of, right? What all these stories have in common, and so many more, I'm sure you can think of lots more examples, is that all of them begin with a character that has this deep longing, that is the same longing that's in every human heart, to be a part of something bigger, a family, a community, a story. And the text that I just read a moment ago actually puts its finger right on that very same longing, that very same theme. And what we're going to do tonight is, hopefully, briefly, what we're just going to do is talk about what this text has to say to us in really three ways. We're going to talk about how this text tells us that in, that in Christ, you and I are adopted into God's family. We're adopted into God's family. Very unusual idea. And that through his spirit, the Holy Spirit, you and I can actually begin to relate to God like a child. Okay, so we're adopted into God's family, and we can begin to relate to God as a child. And we're going to do this in a couple ways. First, we're going to talk about our status as treasured children. If you're the kind of person who takes notes, not everybody does, but if you're the kind of person who takes notes, you might want to write down that word status, our status as treasured children. Then we're going to talk about our tendency to regress, to backtrack away from a childlike relationship with God into something less, something lesser, like a servant or a slave. And then we're going to talk about the assurance, the comfort that the Holy Spirit gives us. Okay, so our status, our tendency to regress, to backtrack, and then the assurance the Holy Spirit gives us. Okay, so I'm going to take us back to our text, Galatians chapter 3, verse 26. You might find it helpful to just have it in front of you because I'm going to reference it a couple times, okay? So look at verses 26, 27, and 28. Our author writes, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Okay, this might be a little confusing, so let's deal with it. What is Paul talking about, this author talking about, when he says there's neither Jew nor Greek? He's saying... There's no cultural hierarchy in God's family. There's no cultural hierarchy in God's family. And this is written, remember, in the first century. This is a time when there really was cultural hierarchy. Everybody that would have heard this for the very first time would have thought, well, obviously Jews are better than Gentiles, right? Um, better than Greeks. And this would have been a completely radical, like world-altering idea, the idea of no cultural hierarchy. It's an idea we probably take for granted now, but it began here in the first century. Okay, and then he says, neither slave nor free. What's he talking about? He's saying there's no economic hierarchy in God's family. And this is, again, written in a time in the world where there absolutely was 
economic, or you might say class hierarchy, different levels of society, and therefore different values there. And this completely revolutionary idea that there is no economic or class hierarchy. And then most interestingly, he says, there is, neither, there is no male and female. What on earth is he saying? He's saying there's no sexual or gender hierarchy. And again, this is written in a time when there absolutely was. Everybody would have assumed that men were more valuable than women. And the fact that we have the privilege and honor of living in a more egalitarian society, where all of us, I'm sure, walked in here this evening already knowing that men and women are equally to be valued, you know where that idea comes from? It comes from right here. It's not a new idea. That's a first century Book of Galatians idea. And so what's our author up to? He's saying God's family is both diverse and unified at the very same time. It's diverse and unified at the very same time. He's saying cultures exist. Yes, they're real. Economic differences exist. Yes, those are real. Gender and sexual differences exist. Yes, those are real. But they are no longer the thing that makes us most, that, that makes us important. They're no longer the thing that makes us more valuable than each other. They're no longer what makes us better or worse. They're no longer, they no longer create a hierarchy. And so there's this very radical idea of this dynamic between diversity and unity in God's family. And you have to hold those two things together, both diversity and unity, because if you make everything the same, well, you have unity, right? But it's unity through homogeny by just making everything the same. So he's not saying that there are no more cultures. He's saying, no, 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 there's still Jewish culture. There's still Greek or Gentile or any other culture, right? Those exist. There's diversity, but then there's unity because there's no hierarchy there. He's not saying there won't be economic disparities. There won't be different levels of kind of economic privilege. Of course, those things will always exist, but they are no longer what make us more important than each other. There's diversity, but then there's unity. And then most probably relevant to us, he's not saying male and female don't exist. He's saying, of course they exist. That's what gives us diversity. Ah, but there's no hierarchy there. And so there's unity. So it's the reality of gender differences without making them ultimate, exemplifying that both extremes um, kind of get it wrong, that gender is neither ultimate, it's not the thing that defines us ultimately, but neither is it fluid. You can't kind of erase it into some sort of homogenous androgyny, right? There's diversity and unity together. But then he keeps going. So if you look at verse 4, okay? But the fullness of time had come. God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Imagine this. Imagine that you are an orphan in the first century. Okay, kind of hard to get your mind there, but try. So you're an orphan in the first century. What does that mean? That means you have no rights at all. It means that you're going to have to go from door to door, knocking on people's front doors, asking if they have any work for you to do so that you can find your next meal. So you're going to go from door to door. Hopefully someone's going to open the door. They're going to let you in and they're going to say, yeah, you can pull weeds in the garden and we'll feed you dinner. Okay. And if you do a good job, maybe you can stay. And so let's say you do a good job and let's say you do stay. And let's say you kind of become something of a servant in that household because you've got nowhere else to go, no other options. And as the years go by, um, you begin to think about what the possibilities are for you for your future. And really, they're not very good. They're pretty bleak. If you get married as you grow up, well, then your spouse is going to be a servant as well in that household. And if you all have kids, those kids are going to be born into servitude. And so the future isn't looking too good. You don't really think much of your prospects. You're just really just trying to make it day to day. And then all of a sudden, sitting around the dinner table one night, 
the, the head of the house comes home and lets you know that that day he went to the local magistrate and he signed some papers and he um, passed uh, around some money and he just wants you to know that your last name is changing and you're actually going to be adopted into the family. And he'd actually like you to come and change the seats at the table. Don't sit over there. Come, come sit over here. He'd like you not to call him master anymore. He'd like you to call him dad. Now, how does this change your future? It revolutionizes your future. Now, if you get married, you're married into freedom. If you have kids, those kids are born into freedom. And when the head of the household passes away, guess what you get? Inheritance. Everything changes because you're adopted. Now, I want to draw your attention to just three words here at the end of verse 5. So if you still have the little sheet there, look at the last three words of verse 5. It's these last three words, adoption as sons. And I want to draw your attention to this. It might not be obvious in English, but if we were reading ancient Greek, it would be obvious because these three words are actually all one word in ancient Greek. Adoption as sons. You could put little hyphens between each, each one of those words. And this is really the main concept of the whole evening because it's the main concept of this whole part of the book of Galatians. And we might summarize this phrase, adoption as sums, with another word. We might use a word like sonship, okay? Or if to use something a little more gender neutral, childship. Sort of the status of being a child or being a son or being a daughter in the family. It's a quote from an old gray-haired theologian named Jim Packer. And it goes like this, and it's about this idea of sonship. It says, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he or she makes of the thought of being God's child and of having God as his or her father. His point is this idea of being adopted as a child of God or sonship or childship, daughtership, being a part of God's family. His point is it's not out on the periphery like sort of incidental to being a Christian, it's actually central. It's like the main idea. It's central to what it means to be a Christian, to be somebody who believes in the death and resurrection of Jesus and follows him. Now here's why. Here's why it's so essential. Because it helps us answer the question, who am I? Sonship, our adoption as a child of God, helps us answer the question, who am I? And if you're not tracking with me here, here's how it works, okay? How do you locate something? You need three dimensions, height, breadth, depth, okay? Three dimensions to locate something. Sonship gives you all three of those, and here's how. First, it establishes a relationship with God as Father. That's height, okay? But then, once you're in a family, it establishes a relationship horizontally with other people, and those are sibling relationships. Brothers and sisters, that's how you relate to other people in the family of God. So, a relationship vertically with God as Father, a relationship horizontally with other people as siblings. But then there's a third dimension, and that one is through time, or you might say history, because your adoption as a child of God puts you on a timeline. It puts you in a story. Remember how we began by talking about how all of our favorite stories begin with a character who is just longing to be part of something bigger? Well, this is what it does for you. It puts you in a story. If you're adopted as God's child, the Old Testament actually becomes like your family heritage. You're part of the story now. It puts you on the timeline. So that's height and breadth and depth. That's a three-dimensional location. It helps you, not fully, but it gets you a good way down the road to answering the question, who am I? And all of this works together to make us free. And it does that because beloved children are some of the freest creatures that exist in nature. 
Just think about it. Think about the Lovett kids. Do you guys know some of the Lovett kids? Lewis and Maggie's kids? Ellie, Kate, Ruthie, Caroline, and Betsy? Those are some of the freest kids you will meet. Do you know why? Because their parents love them. They are loved children. And so they are free. They're free to obey. They're free to fail and be forgiven. They're free to grow. They're free to mature. They're free to develop. They're free to change in good ways. They're free to be helped if they're changing in bad ways. Those kids are free because they are loved. And so the point I hope that we're seeing here right off the bat is that our adoption as children changes our status. It changes our status in our relationship with God, our relationship with each other, and even our relationship with ourselves, okay? But as soon as we say that, if we're being honest, which I hope we are, then we'll have to immediately begin thinking about all the reasons why we don't experience that and why that might almost begin to sound like something of a fantasy and not something concrete in reality. It's like, that's a nice idea. Maybe I can think about that, but I'm not sure I really experience that. And here's why I think that happens. I think that happens because we have this tendency, every single one of us, in our relationship with God, whether we feel close to God or not, to regress, to backtrack from this status of adoption into something lesser, something less than that, something more like a servant. And if you're having a hard time imagining what I'm saying, think about this. Some of you might know the story of the prodigal son. I know some of you might know that, some of you might not. If you don't know the story of the prodigal son, it goes like this. There's two sons, and the younger one just wants to be free, wants to be free of his parents. And so he goes to his dad and he says, give me my share of the inheritance, I wanna leave. And the dad miraculously says, sure, okay, have it. So gives him all the cash and the kid leaves, goes and has a pretty wild time, eventually runs out of money, makes a total wreck of his life, and wants to come home because he really has no other options. So he comes home, his dad meets him on the road, and if you're familiar with the story, the son says something very interesting. He meets his dad on the road, and he doesn't say, Dad, will you please let me back in the house? Can I just come back and be your little kid again? It's not what he says. Do you know what he says? He says, can I come back and be a servant in your house? You see, what's happened in this little story is that the kid has made such a mess of his life that he just doesn't feel like he deserves to be a child, to be called a son. Instead, he would still like to be there, but maybe he can just sort of have some sort of useful purpose, some sort of pragmatic purpose, some sort of, you know, place in the family, but just something, somebody that gets something done. So he wants to be a servant because then maybe that way he'll be acceptable and he can show his dad that he deserves to be back. And the reality is, is that all of us at one level or another tend to have something of a relationship to God like that. Like maybe I can just be useful to God. Like maybe I can get some stuff done for him, right? I can work for justice. I can do something that maybe he'll like. And maybe through what I'm doing, I'll make myself just a bit more acceptable. And so if you're wondering to yourself right now, like, is that true? Do I do that? Here are some diagnostic questions, okay? Just some questions to help you think about this. First, when you fail, when you really blow it, do you run to God or do you run away from God? The way you answer that question will really tell you something about yourself. When you fail, do you run to God with your failure, asking for help, or do you run away from God because of your failure? 
The difference between those two is the difference between a beloved child who runs to the parent because they're failed and a performing servant who flees from the master because they failed. Does that make sense? You might imagine one of the Lovett kids accidentally knocking a lamp off a dresser, right? The lamp falls, it shatters. What does the kid do? Do they sweep it under the dresser and like go hide because dad's going to lose it on them? No. If you know Lewis, you know he's not like that. No, instead they're going to run to dad because they need help. They just broke something and they need his help to fix it and put it right. Okay, first diagnostic question. When you fail, where do you run? To God or away from him? That'll tell you something about yourself. Second diagnostic question. When somebody else does better than you, when somebody else performs or at least seems to perform better than you, do you genuinely celebrate or do you secretly resent their success? You see, that answer will tell you if you have a competitive relationship with others, like a jockeying servant, right? Like a servant who's in competition with other servants to win the master's approval, right? Or whether you have a sibling-like relationship with, um, with others that you, gen- where you genuinely delight in their success and you celebrate with them, okay? Are you a performing servant or are you a sibling, okay? That's the second diagnostic question. Third one, this one's a little more complex because we're turning inward and we're examining our own minds and our own hearts. Okay, so this one requires a little bit of nuance. Bear with me here. Here's the question. Are you either, on one hand, constantly shifting your identity, trying on different personalities like hats, trying to figure out which one plays best, or are you stuck and you just think to yourself, I am who I am, like it or not, I'll never change, okay? Do you shift identities, trying on different ones like hats, trying to see which one plays best, or do you feel stuck, just stuck with who you are, thinking you can never change? Both of those, for opposite reasons, are evidence of inner insecurity. Insecurity, like not being a free, beloved child, being something else, being something of a servant. You see, the first one, the one who's trying on different hats, trying to figure out, who am I? Which personality works best socially? That person has no inner assurance of who they are. They're not free. How? They're not free to just be themselves. They're not free to be the person that God has made them to be. Now, and on the other end of the spectrum, the person who's stuck, who can't change, they're not free to grow. They have no confidence, no hope that they could actually mature and develop and grow into the person that God has made them to be. And so both are insecure, but for opposite reasons. So y'all, what's at stake here? Here's what's at stake. If we don't get this, if you and I don't really let this sink in and transform us, that you and I can be adopted by God and actually become a child and an heir in his family, then here's what we're going to do. We're going to live our lives as slaves or servants kind of constantly trying to please God enough to avoid punishment and not have bad karma, competing with each other to see who's best, all the while feeling deeply insecure about who we are. That's what's at stake here. And just to make matters a little bit worse, they're going to get better eventually, but just to make them a little bit worse for now, here's why. Here's why I think we're, we have so much trouble with this. I think it's because you and I so rarely have the experience of being a child of God. I think it's because we, have so, rarely, we so rarely have the experience of sonship, of being a child, a son or a daughter of God. It's like we know that the status is real. 
but we just haven't had the experience of it. We believe it's true, but we just don't feel it. And so in that sense, we're something like Harry being told he's a wizard, but never really accepting the invitation and going to Hogwarts, right? Like Arthur pulling the sword out of the stone, but never making it to Camelot. We're like a child who's legally adopted in court, but never actually goes to live with the new family. The status is there, but the experience is lacking. So we've got to ask the question, what's going to draw us in? What's going to help? How are we going to fix this? What's going to move in our hearts so that we actually know beyond a shadow of a doubt that we are adopted, that we are adopted as children of God? Our text actually helps us. The answer is right there. So let's look at verse 6 together. Here's the help. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Now we sang this word Abba earlier. I don't know if you noticed that in the song Arise, Arise that we sang when we first came in here. This wasn't planned. I don't know why you, did you guys choose that on purpose? Um, you might, have, you might have sung that word and wondered, why am I singing this word that I don't even know what it means? Um, here's what that word Abba is. There are formal ways to address a parent, like mother or father. That is a formal way to address your parents. But that's probably not how most of us talk to our parents. Most of us, those of us that have maybe perhaps good relationships with parents, might use something like mom and dad. Or if you're even younger, something like mommy and daddy. And if you're really young and kind of old school, something like mama and papa, right? Or pa, if you're Little House on the Prairie. Um, that's closer to what Abba is. It's, it's daddy. It's papa. It's very intimate and familial and informal. It's a way a little kid talks to a, a father, but not a formal father, a daddy. And so I want to tell you a story. This, uh, two weeks ago, Something happened in our family for the very first time. All of the Murata kids have experienced this at some point, but our youngest, our fourth child, did this for the very first time two weeks ago. And it just, I just about lost it when it happened. It was, it was so beautiful. Um, when I come home every afternoon, we have this little like ritual that we do as a family. And we just sort of stumbled into this. I didn't plan on creating a ritual. It just is a habit that has now become entrenched and now we always have to do it. Um, so when I walk in our house, I open the door, and I start whistling. And there's a tune that I start whistling, and it's the tune that my elderly Italian grandfather would whistle to himself as he kind of puttered around the house fixing things and complaining about the government and other stuff. Um, so just imagine a very old Italian man kind of puttering around whistling this tune. It's not a song, it's just his own little made up tune. But I grew up hearing that. And so for me, that's the sound of family. So when I come home, I will start whistling that tune. And the Murata kids, wherever they are, around the house or outside in the backyard on the swing set, they will come thundering down uh, to find me because they know that, that I'm finally home. And our youngest just kind of started learning to walk, so he hasn't really been able to do this. Um, but our little 18-month-old son, uh, John, two weeks ago, I come home, I do the whistle, I hear the thundering footsteps, but it's not the older kids. It's 18-month-old John, who rounds the corner, wearing only a diaper, tottering back and forth. He's about to keel over and wipe out at any minute, and he's yelling at the top of his voice, Daddy, 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 which he's never done before. Abba, 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 Abba. Now, John has always been my son. There has never been a moment that he has not had the status of being my son. He's always had that. 
But I think two weeks ago, he had the experience of being my son, maybe for him the very first time. Something changed, something was different. He's always had the status, but now he's got the experience. And so what we see here, the very end of this text, is that it's the Holy Spirit's work in our lives that actually helps us to relate to God like a child relating to a father. It's the Holy Spirit that helps us to do this. And so without the Holy Spirit, we can't do this. This is why it's so important that there is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Because if there's just Father and Son, we won't be able to do this. But the Spirit is actually present with us, inside of us, and allows us, enables us to interact with God in this way. And this is a way of relating to God that might be foreign to almost all of us because it's a way of relating to God without pragmatism. Here's what I mean. Most of us are at least somewhat familiar with the idea of relating to God in order to get something or accomplish something or receive help with something. Those are pragmatic ways of relating to God. And they're not bad, they're good. You should pray to God when you need help. He will listen to you. He will help you. You should relate to God as creator, the one who made all things, because he did. That's true. You should relate to Jesus as Savior because He is and He did come to rescue you. You can relate to God as provider, the one who gives you everything you need because He does and He loves you. But what we're talking about tonight is a non-pragmatic way of relating to God, a way of relating to God that isn't about getting something. It's just about enjoyment. It's just about enjoying God, finding pleasure in your relationship with God. If you're having trouble imagining what that could possibly be, here are a couple things that I know you probably already know. Um, right now, your students, you have a very bizarre relationship with books right now, okay? You have to pay way too much for them, or rather your parents have to pay way too much for them, um, and you have to study them for information to write papers and take tests to get grades to like advance your life, right? That is the relationship you primarily have with books right now. But there is coming a day, very soon, when your relationship with books will change because there will be no more papers or tests, and so you will get to enjoy reading. And you might do this. This has happened to me. I know it's happened to Lewis. It might happen to you. You might end up going back to some of those very same books that were assigned to you on a syllabus, and you might read them for fun. I know it sounds crazy, but like you're going to do it. And when you do, you're going to email me, and we're going to talk about it. It's going to be great. Um, it's the difference between relating to something pragmatically versus relating to something for enjoyment. It's the difference between cooking to survive and cooking because you have friends coming over. Um, Y'all, I want to end here. Let's just end by thinking about this. I want to end by just sort of asking us to use our imaginations a bit and just imagine what life would be like if the Holy Spirit really was with us and really began to change the way we relate to God. And what we're hoping is that... Um, that this way of relating to God doesn't replace relating to God as creator or provider or savior. God is still the creator and provider. The Lord Jesus still is your savior. He really did come to rescue you. But this is a way, this is hoping, hopefully adding another layer, another layer to the way that you relate to God because it's non-pragmatic and it's just about enjoyment. And so just imagine, just use your imaginations and think about what would life be like if you began to relate to God with real intimacy, and I'm even going to use the word affection. What if you began to relate to God with real intimacy and affection? Here's what it would look like. It would look like you would find yourself praying without a wish list. You would find yourself praying without asking for anything. What a bizarre experience that would be. 
Why are you praying if you're not asking for something? There are actually lots of reasons to pray without asking for something. And one of them is to just enjoy your relationship with your Father. Second, what would life be like if you had non-competitive sibling relationships with each other? What would that be like? To hear from someone else that they did better than you on something and to genuinely, from your gut, not in a contrived way, in a genuine, authentic way, feel joy, feel gratitude, feel excitement that somebody else is doing so well. Third, what would life be like if you had such deep security in your identity, in who you are, that you don't have to try on different personalities to see which one plays best? You feel completely content to be the person that God has made you to be and along the way to grow and develop and mature at whatever pace God is bringing you along and you feel no need to rush ahead and no need to feel it to be stuck or lag behind. What would that be like? Real intimacy and affection with God, non-competitive sibling relationships, deep security in our identity. That's what the Holy Spirit can do in our hearts, helping us relate to God like a child. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for these wonderful young men and women. Thank you for their brilliance. Thank you for their gifts. Thank you for the people that you have made them to be. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help all of us, all of us, to begin to relate to you in non-pragmatic ways, to simply enjoy that you are our Father and we are your children and that we are beloved and therefore we are free. Thank you so much. Thank you, Heavenly Father, we pray. Amen.